of uh, Scripture in Acts 2. We as a faith family right now, we're in the middle of a kind of a journey through the book of Acts as we, during this time, worship together through studying Scripture together. This is an act of worship. I hope you understand that. This is not a time for you to just sit back and listen. This is not a uh, sit on the sidelines and observe time. This is actually a participating sport, if you will. It's a time where we participate together in studying the Word of God together. This is the basis and foundation of what we understand and know God is His Word. And so we're looking into the book of Acts, and we've been seeing the last... The past three weeks, we've been seeing in Acts that Jesus established a church. And what was the church? What is the church? The church is all true believers. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer here this morning, you are a part of the church. The global church. There's brothers and sisters all across this world who believe the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, and have accepted that for the basis of their salvation that right there includes us in the global church. We've also talked about a few weeks ago that there is the local church. That is what we are here at Leewood, the local church. We are a part of something local. We can't worship all our, with our brothers and sisters in Christ around uh, the world at one time because the logistics of that would be confusing. As neat as that would be and even the technology that we've been blessed with, with time zones and everything, we can't do that. But we are a part of the local church. We're here to gather together to worship and make much of Jesus. But the church, we're not just here writing it out. If you're a believer, we're not just here writing it out to maybe be a little bit frank. We're not here writing it out until we die or until Jesus comes back. But no, Jesus has given the church a mission. What is that mission? To be his representatives to the world. That when people see us, both on an individual basis and as a church as a whole, that they will understand to a, and to a greater degree of who Jesus really is. And what's interesting is we're walking through this book of Acts right now and we're seeing the commands of Christ for the church and what the early church did. Yes, there's application to our lives on a corporate level as the church, but also as individuals as well. So Jesus gave the church a mission to be his representatives to the world, that the world would know him in a greater detail, to make Jesus obvious to the entire world. But he didn't just leave us hanging, thankfully, to say, okay, go do this. Here's a mission. This is a huge mission to do. Have at it. Good luck to you. No, that's not what Jesus did at all. He promised the early church the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would empower us in our lives to be his representatives. That is something that you and I can't do on our own. We have the Holy Spirit. So as believers, we've talked about how as, at the time of our salvation, when we become a believer, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and he's there to help us to be that representative of Jesus Christ. And then we talked about that the Holy Spirit brings discernment. We talked about there at the end of Acts 1 how the, the early church had a decision to make. And what was that decision? Anyone remembers this two weeks ago? What was the decision they had to make? Something they had to figure out as a church. What they have to figure out? Who was going to replace Judas to be a, another disciple? Judas had committed suicide because of his betrayal of Jesus, so they had to decide who Judas was. And so they cast lots. Now, does that mean that we cast lots today 
to make decisions as a church and in our individual lives? Yes or no? Do we do that? Anyone get out the Monopoly dice this week to make some decisions? No. Why don't we do that anymore? That's what they did here in Acts chapter 1. And remember, we've talked about how Acts, there's a historical perspective of Acts and a prescriptive application to Acts. That, yes, Acts is a book of history, but also it prescribes and has us do things. So why don't we today cast lots or do other things to make decisions in our lives? Because we have the Holy Spirit. We have something better than that. We have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit helps us discern God's will in our lives and in the, in the life of the church. And then when they, we talked about how the early church, they prayed. We've talked about, and we're going to see more and more and more, the importance of prayer to the church. God, in His sovereignty, has ordained it that you and I get to participate in His redemptive plan through prayer. We must participate in his redemptive prayer, uh, redemptive plan through prayer. And then last week, we saw Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up here in Acts chapter 2 and he preached. And we learned that through the preaching and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, people are saved and lives are changed. It is the gospel coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit, that lives are changed. And what happened here in Acts chapter 2? Well, look again at verse 41. This is where we left off last week. Look at verse 41. It says, Those who received his word, what Peter was preaching, he preached the gospel. He said, Jesus came to this earth. He was crucified. And Peter even kind of pointed the finger at these people in Jerusalem, didn't he? He said, the Lord Jesus, who you crucified, and I talk about in-your-face preaching, <laughs> he said, who you crucified was died and was resurrected. So Peter preached the gospel. So it's verse, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So overnight, through the power of the gospel, the reality that Jesus Christ came to this planet, died on the cross for the sins of the world, and then was resurrected to give brand new spiritual life and to seal our salvation, the gospel coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, 120 people overnight went to 3,000. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there on the day of Pentecost to see that? I say this all the time and people tease me about it, but I'm going to keep saying it because I'm a pretty stubborn person. I hope there is DVR in heaven. And I hope we get to rewind and get to watch this where 120 people that were believers exploded to 3,000 souls that were saved. I don't know if we have any history buffs here. I enjoy history. I I really like history. I like watching documentaries on history. And one of my favorite places to go is Washington, D.C. I really enjoy Washington, D.C. I don't know if that's any of interest to anybody else, but I enjoy American history. And whenever I go to places in Washington, D.C., I've been to Mount Vernon, the home of George Washington, the father of our country. And 
Uh, I've been to uh, Ford's Theater where President Lincoln was assassinated and then a, a, the house across the street where they took him across the street and he uh, just was able, barely able to make it through the night and passed away early the next morning. How many of you have been there? You know what I'm talking about. I love American history and being a part of that. I've had the opportunity to tour the White House and, and just being there. And whenever I'm in those situations, I think, wow, this is the place where whatever happened. And I would have loved to have been there in this moment. First, yes, to see 3,000 people saved in just a matter of moments. But what happened here now in Jerusalem, this church of 120 people is now 3,000. You want to talk about a logistical and some, maybe even a pastoral nightmare. These apostles, they were in charge of 120 people. Now they're in charge of 3,000 people. And we have to ask the question, what did this church do? What were they doing? So this passage of scripture, I've said many times so far as we're going through Acts, that Acts is both historical. Luke, the writer of Acts, there's parts of Acts that he's just writing. And he's saying, this is what happened. And then there's parts of it that he's writing and it's prescriptive to us today. This section that we're going to read, verses 42 through 47 today, is both, yes, historical, but also prescriptive for our lives as a church, but also in our own individual lives. So we're going to unpack this together. So let's keep going here in Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 42. Verse 42. And they, those 3,000 people, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. All of a sudden, we see a new community established. Not a cult, not a compound, nothing crazy like that. But we all of a sudden now, we're getting an inside look at a new community that has been established and how they operated. This community, a community of faith, was simply the church. And what did they do? What, they did, do, what did they do? It was pretty simple. It was pretty simple. Look again at verse 42. Let's start picking this section apart. Verse 42 says, First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles, these 12 men that had seen Jesus from his baptism, we talked a little bit about the qualifications of the apostles. They had been a part of Jesus' ministry for those three years that he was on earth. From his baptism, his earthly ministry, and they would have seen the resurrected Christ. These 12 men, they were teaching and they devoted themselves. These people devoted themselves. So what were the apostles teaching? That's the question I've asked this week. What were the apostles teaching? What were these people, the, this new community of faith, what were they so devoted to? Obviously the apostles teaching, but what were they teaching? What were they so devoted to? 
Well, they were, the apostles were teaching what Jesus taught. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? Because these men, they had spent three years with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. They had seen how Jesus lived. Jesus lived life with them. Jesus taught them. Jesus taught them spiritual truths. Jesus told them, when I leave this earth, and that really bothered them. They had a hard time with that. And so Jesus said, I'm going to provide a comforter for you. And my presence in your life, the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught them for three years. And so what did they do? They taught what Jesus taught. They were just passing on the information they had learned from Jesus. All that Jesus taught, I think of Luke chapter 11. What does Jesus teach about in Luke chapter 11? His disciples gathered around them. Anyone know that passage in Luke 11? What did Jesus teach them? They said that his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. It's interesting that they didn't ask, Lord, teach us to pray. To preach. Now, Jesus was a phenomenal teacher. We see that Jesus was the greatest teacher, but he wasn't just a teacher. They went and asked Jesus, How, teach us to perform these miracles. Though they had seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles, no, they asked Jesus, Teach us to pray. How he must have prayed must have just really stuck with them because that's what they asked. And how did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, Jesus taught them how to pray. And so they were, these apostles, they are then just taking what Jesus taught them and they passed it on to others. There was teaching. What is that called? There's a fancy word we call that. Discipleship. That's discipleship. They were just taking what they had learned from Jesus, and they were passing it on to someone else and teaching them. And these people were devoted to that. It was centered around the teaching of Jesus. Now let's keep going. The last part of verse 42, we're picking this apart. We're dissecting this. And the fellowship, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, what was going on here? We see the fellowship here, the breaking of bread. That fellowship that's a fancy Greek word called koinonia. They were fellowshipping together. Now, we today, especially in a Baptist church, one of the misnomers about Baptists is that we like to eat. Actually, it's not a misnormal. It's, it's real. We like to eat, right? We like our potlucks. We like to eat. When we think of fellowship, what do we think about? Food. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. We ought to do that, I hope, on a regular basis. We'll talk about this in a minute. That you have people into your home and you show hospitality and you eat. God has given us the gift of food. We ought to enjoy that responsibly. But that's not what they're talking about here when it says fellowship. Not at all. There's not food involved. Well, they did have food involved, but it was deeper than just food. It was deeper than just a, hey, how are you doing? How was your week? You doing okay? It was deeper than that. With that word fellowship, that Greek word koinonia, what it, what it implies is a deep spiritual concern for one another. So these people, this early church, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the teaching of Jesus, but also to each other. They were devoted to each other. That word devoted is strong. That's a strong word. 
They were devoted to one another. Devoted to the spiritual care and concern to, to one another. The idea here is almost of like a, a spiritual hospital. The church was a spiritual hospital that, that care and concern on a spiritual level. These were not surface people. They cared about each other at a deep level. And it says, so they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, you might be thinking, aha, this is where they were eating, right? This is where we get our biblical doctrine of the potluck, right? No. When it talks about breaking of bread here, it's talking about the Lord's Supper, communion. You remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper just before he died, he called his disciples together in the upper room. And again, here's some of the apostles' teaching. Jesus, one of the things Jesus taught them and brought them together in that room, that Last Supper. And Jesus, he took some bread and he broke it. And what did he say about that bread? This is my body broken for you. And he broke it to symbolize what he was about to do for his body to be broken for the sins of the world. So he used that as a symbol to teach them, this is what I'm about to do. Then he took a cup of wine and he held that up. And what did he say? This represents what? My blood. My blood, this represents my blood that is going to be shed for the removal of sin. Jesus was saying, I am getting ready to go to the cross. I'm going to substitute myself, I'm going to put myself in your place on the cross to die and bleed for your sin. There's power in that blood and Jesus said, I'm about to do this and that is so what they did there, they were devoted to this, and they took the Lord's Supper continually. They used it as a teaching tool, as a reminder. They broke that bread, they drank that wine to say, this is what Jesus did for us. They did not want to forget it. They understood the significance of the death of Jesus Christ. It was meaningful to them. Many of them had seen Jesus die, and they were not going to allow that memory that to, to fade. And they were going to, they instituted, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. They followed as an example, and so they were devoted to it. They broke that bread. And that is why today, 2,000 years later, we still do that. And it's not just a tradition we hold to. Traditions are good, but it's not just a tradition. Don't ever think whenever we take the Lord's Supper, take communion here at Leewood, that we're just doing it for the sake of tradition. Oh no, it's much better and deeper than that. It's for us to continue to remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. We do it so we don't, we, we take the Lord's Supper and communion. We do that so that death, that substitutionary atonement of Jesus never loses its significance to us. And sadly today in our culture and in our church world today, the death of Jesus Christ, it is losing its significance. And Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the, the early church. They took the Lord's Supper to be a reminder that they would never forget that they would never forget the death of Jesus Christ. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Some of this was the liturgy, the Jewish traditions of prayer. They devoted themselves to that. But let's keep going now. 
Down to verse 44. For in verse 43, well, let's, let's just read verse 43. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What was going on there? There was just a confirmation of the Holy Spirit over and over again after the day of Pentecost. There were seeing miracles and awe or healthy respect for God continued to grow in the church. And in verse 44, all who believed, key word there, circle that, underline it, highlight that. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. So we see here in verse 44, they were unified. They had all things in common. They were unified. And as we understand here what took place in Acts chapter 2, do you remember what happened when Peter started preaching? What happened? Something kind of funny kind of happened. They started speaking in different languages, right? People started showing up from all over the world. They were there in Jerusalem from all over the world, and they began to hear the apostles preach, specifically Peter. They heard this, and they heard it in their own language. So what that tells us, it wasn't just Jewish-speaking people there. It was all nations were represented there in Jerusalem. And so of those 3,000 people, those were just not Jewish people who were saved. There were people of all tribes, all nations, all languages represented there. So they did not have that Jewish culture in common. There was language differences in that early church, but it says here they had all things in common. So they didn't look like each other. They didn't have the same skin color. They didn't speak the same language. So what was it that they had all things in common? There was rich people. There were poor people. There were middle class people represented. They were there. There were slaves that were there. There was all kinds of people all across all kinds of classes there. Society classes there. So what was it, this diverse group of people in the church, what was it that kept them unified? Look up there. All who believed. Believed in what? Jesus. That was the unity they had. The unity that Jesus had come to the this planet for them. They had realized they were sinners, that they needed to be saved. They needed to be rescued by Jesus. And so this diverse group of people, they realized that in their lives. They understood that Jesus had died on the cross to take away their sin, that he was resurrected. That's the gospel. They were unified in that. It was all about Jesus. They were unified around that. In our lives today... It must be all about Jesus. It's interesting here that it doesn't say that all who believed and had all things in common, that they had the same social status, that they had the same income, that they had the same skin color, they spoke the same language. It doesn't say any of that. They just had all things in common, which means to these people, Jesus was enough. He was enough. Jesus was enough for them. All that Jesus had done, it was enough. And so as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves uh, the question here on an individual basis, is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for me? I've been confronted with that reality this week in a very real way. Is Jesus enough? That no matter what happens in life, 
no matter what's going on in our world, is Jesus enough? And I think it's easy for us to sit here on a Sunday morning saying, yes, he is enough. It's easy for us here in our wealthiness of the United States. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Jesus is enough. He's enough. But if all our possessions, everything we owned, everything our families, if everything that we knew was stripped away, could we say Jesus is enough? Is he enough? So on an individual basis, we have to ask ourselves that question. And then corporately, as a church, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus enough? If we stripped away everything here, and all we did was share Jesus together, would that be enough? If we didn't have music, if we didn't even have lights in here, if we didn't even have a place to sit, would Jesus be enough? Would that be enough? I had a friend of mine, his name's George Tagley, that during his summers in college, he would go over to China and he would uh, teach English in the university level. He was an English major and I teased him often about that. And he would point out my lack of grammar in the way I would talk and write. And he, so we would have that back and forth together. But George would go for three straight summers, would go to China to teach English from a group from uh, the college I went to. They would go to teach English in the university system, but also then to establish Bible studies in apartments with, with Chinese students. And you could do that in the Chinese government as long as it was student-initiated in that communist government. And George told me, he said, he, he got to sit in the underground church of China. It's illegal to gather together as a body of believers and worship in China. And he said they would gather together. And he said, Adam, it was one of the most humbling, most simple experiences of his life. They would meet in basements with just a few lights hanging down from the ceiling. No music, no instruments. Not even good lighting. Not even everyone had Bibles there. And they would share Jesus. And Jesus would be enough. We hear stories, if you get the magazine, The Voice of Martyrs, we hear of brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East. And uh, we have no idea what persecution really means. Persecution to us is someone looking at us funny if we talk about Jesus at work. These people are losing their lives. And in the Middle East, there are... Bodies of believers who will walk, uh, there are believers who will walk miles to worship together in a shack with one single light bulb in the room to share Jesus. You know what? It's enough. It's enough. So, my question for each one of us in this room, as individuals and as a church, and even to myself, is Is Jesus enough? Because if he's not enough, that's when conflict happens. It's funny how conflict happens in churches, right? Over silliness. Because the reality is, Jesus isn't enough. Something else has become more important about Jesus. That's why when we walked through and talked about our church, and we unpacked that, and we talk about sharing Jesus and discipling believers and reaching the nations, sharing Jesus is so important because he is enough. 
when we get everything in our lives stripped down to the reality, when God backs us into a corner and to all we can do is look is up, the reality sets in and it's not always an easy process, it's a pain, painful process to where we realize that yes, Jesus is enough. And when the body of believers can agree and say, yes, Jesus is enough, they have all things in common. There's unity there. And this is what these people had. They had all things in common because they, as a group of believers, says, Jesus is enough. Let's keep going. We got to keep moving. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this passage of scripture has been misinterpreted over the years. There has been an idea, and it's crazy and it's insane, but there is an idea that this is an argument for communism, the, the communism form of government, where this is where the church was a communist organization, where people had to give, so everyone was on an uh, equal basis, and everyone uh, had the same amount of everything, and that's what's going on. No, this is not an argument for communism. Don't ever believe that lie. There's something inherently evil about communism, okay? That's not what's happening here. Because in communism, the government tells you, this is what you are going to do, so we're all in equal places. This is not what happened. It says they were selling. They were doing it of their own free will. So these people were selling their possessions and their belongings. As we go a little further in Acts, we'll see this in a couple of weeks when Daniel shares from Acts from us that they would sell their property, they would sell their real estate, they sold everything they had, and they would distribute it to those who had any need. These people, this church, this early church, they were marked by their generosity. They were generous people. Did you know that as believers, we are to be marked by generosity because we have been given so much? When we look in Ephesians 1, and I encourage you to maybe go back this week and read it. When we look in Ephesians 1, talking about that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings through Jesus Christ. When we look at that, how Jesus has been so generous with us, the natural byproduct of being a believer is being generous. And these people were generous. They were selling their possessions, their belongings, and then proceeding the money to all those who had need. They were generous. And in verse 46, and I think you all will like this one. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So here's what were happening. Happening day by day, they were attending the temple. What were they doing? They were worshiping together day by day. It's a sacrifice for us to come once a week, right? We feel really good about ourselves if we make it to church once a week. Like, wow, check that off our list. I'm, I, I did good this week, right? And these people were devoted, weren't they? They went day by day and they worshiped, but it didn't stop there. They went back to their homes and they broke bread. Yes, they took the Lord's Supper, but here's where the potluck comes into play. They would eat together. They had fellowship together. They were inviting people into their homes and showing hospitality and sharing food together, sharing uh, their, their faith together. And they had all of that revolving around together. They had all things in common. They're gathering together for meals. Wouldn't you love to have been part of something like that? Let me encourage you to do something. Over this next month, 
invite someone into your home for the purpose of sharing Jesus. I've realized in my own life I'm good about inviting people over to watch a ball game or to play games or just to kind of hang out. But when we read this, as a faith family, let's invite people into our homes, have a meal together with the purpose of sharing Jesus together. You see, Adam, what does it look like? Just share what Jesus is doing in your life. It's easy for us to talk about our families and our work, but if Jesus has done so much for us and we are truly devoted to him, it would be a natural byproduct to talk about what Jesus is doing in our lives. So I challenge you this week or then the next month to find someone, maybe you don't even know, go outside your real comfort zone, right? Not just with the people that we feel comfortable sitting around or you eat meals with all the time. Find someone that you don't really know and say, hey, would you come over for a meal? Let's share Jesus together. That's what they were doing. They, they had unity. They ate bread in their homes. They, they, were wor- they were worshiping together. They had all things in common. Now look at verse 47 and we're done. Look at verse 47. It says, verse 47, they were praising God. What was that? Worship. They were worshiping. They were praising God. They're having favor with all the people. So let's stop there for just a moment. They were worshiping. They had favor with all the people in Jerusalem. Believers and unbelievers, no matter cultural background, they had favor with them. God gave them favor in their community. People respected them. Jesus was made obvious. Now as we see as we keep going through the book of Acts, that doesn't last real long. There is persecution that comes into play, and this, we'll see that in just a few weeks. But they had favor with all the people. They were respected in their community. Did you know, research shows us that every church has a reputation in the community. Every church has a reputation. When people drive by any building, no matter denomination, and I'm not big on denominations, but no matter denomination and, and all of that, every church has a reputation in the community. And so when people drive by, what do they think? What do they know? Because here's the reality. I learned this when I was a seminarian. It blew me away. That the community ought to be noticeably different because of the church. Noticeably different in a good way. Let's say that. Noticeably different in a good way because of the church. The question has to be asked, yes, for our church, but all churches across our nation. If the doors of the church were closed, would the neighborhood, would the community even notice? Would they even notice? If not, there's a problem. Jesus isn't being made obvious. Because the church ought to have favor in the community that through our works and through, our, through what we do that people will understand in a greater way who Jesus is. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, let your light so shine, so shine before men that they may think good things about you, be impressed by you. No, that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's why we're here as a church. This goes all the way back to that mission in Acts 1 we saw. To be the representatives of Jesus to the world. So they were worshiping. They were having influence in their community. And then look at verse 
47, that last half of that verse, and this is where we end. All this is going on in their church and what was happening. And the Lord, key phrase there, and the Lord added to their number day by day. Let's push pause for a second. Those who are coming from other churches? No. Those who had come to be part of some fantastic program? No. Those who were coming because the church had fantastic worship? No. Why were they, what was happening? They were being numbered, added to their number day by day. Those who are being saved. Folks, right here in Acts, Luke is emphasizing the gospel and the Holy Spirit. It what? It works. Say that with me. It works. The gospel and the Holy Spirit, it works. And people, all of this going on, they were centered on the gospel. They Empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were centered on Jesus. And what was happening? People were being added to their number every day by being saved. Their lives were being changed. That was happening. And folks, I don't know about you, but this is what I want to be a part of right here in Acts, the end of Acts chapter 2. That's what I hope you want to be a part of. So let's stay Jesus-centered in our own individual lives, in our church. And we together can declare to not just ourselves, but to the world, Jesus is enough. Let's pray.